All right, Numbers 20. Numbers 20. Just to make uh, certain that you knew that this was a Moses study, not necessarily an Exodus study. Uh, we've sprinkled in some numbers towards the end, and we'll be in numbers the next couple weeks. Well, so this week, next week, we have Holy Week. Then we'll turn with numbers again. And then the, the last thing we will study is Moses' death in Deuteronomy. And so again, our purpose when we started out was to study the life of Moses. So there is a lot at the end of Exodus that we are obviously not covering, uh, mostly the tabernacle. So I encourage you to read that and study that. But really, when we set out in the beginning, our study was to study a man's life. A man, if you remember, a broken man, a man that God called to do amazing things for his glory and a man who is really not unlike you and I. And we are going to see that uh, in great detail this morning, that Moses was deeply broken, and, uh, and his own brokenness, even towards the end of his ministry and his calling, uh, really cost him dearly. Even after all that he had done from God, it cost him dearly. We're going to look at that this morning. So Numbers chapter 20, you've got your sheet there. You can get your Bible out. Let me pray for us. We'll get started. Father in heaven, we are um, grateful to be here this morning. We're grateful, Father, for the life and breath that you grant us, not just physically, but spiritually, that this morning your mercies are new, that you have called each one of us by name, and that you are moving through your word as a means of grace to mold us, teach us, conform us more into the image of your Son. And so, Father, as we address a very um, difficult topic this morning, but a topic that plagues every one of us as men, I pray, Father, that you would give us a vision of your glory that would completely overwhelm our pride. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Numbers chapter 20. And we will be kind of skipping around this chapter mostly this morning. We'll look at a few other places as well. So do get out a Bible if you have one or your phone or iPad. Uh, the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, could recite it. What is the chief end of man? Anyone want to take a stab at it? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Very good. We're sort of awake this morning. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. My question for you this morning is, what does it mean to glorify God? That's great. It's the first question. It's been argued that it is incredibly important. And it's the first question for a reason. Right? It's the sum total of what our purpose is, what our end as, as men really is. It's to glorify God. The question is, well, what does that mean? What does it mean for you today, in your life, as you leave this place, to go and to glorify God, and to do so the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the day after that. What does it look like to live a life for the glory of God? And many people have written about that, um, wondered about that, pondered about it, preached on it. There's a lot of things I could say what it is, but what I do know, without a shadow of a doubt, is what it is not. What it does not mean to give God glory with your life. Uh, many of you have heard parts of my story. I'm going to tell a little bit more of it this morning. Shortly after I became a Christian, 
and largely not a Christian because of pride, because of arrogance, because of feeling like I had a better way, that I did not need God, I did not need Him, and I certainly did not need His church, a bunch of people who I thought, and as I looked at them, thought they were nothing but judgmental hypocrites. Of course, I was one too, just didn't realize it yet. And as shortly after I became a Christian, I still did not like Christians, did not like the church, even though I was one, and I had a chip on my shoulder. And this chip carried with me for a long time. It was a chip on my shoulder that has produced many things by the grace of God in me today. For example, uh, some of you know that I'm a musician. I can play a variety of instruments. I got into church music because I didn't like it. How arrogant is that? That's why I started playing church music, because I didn't like it and I wanted to change it. That's a little twisted. And that chip on my shoulder continued, and really, my, the first church that I was really at, where I began to learn what it meant to be a Christian man, I really struggled, because the men that I was sitting under, in my estimation, were very weak men. Now, I look back on those days, and I don't think they were. But at the time, I thought they were weak men. I thought they were pushovers. I, had, I, I struggled with sitting under their leadership. And so I turned towards a different brand of Christianity. And I won't mention its name because I don't think that will be helpful this morning. But I turned to a different brand and began to hang around guys who were very macho, right? Had also chips on their shoulders. Uh, after college, became the worship director at a church in Frisco, and I loved the fact that we met in an old bar. I loved that. Um, And again, I'm not knocking that, but I loved that for the wrong reasons. We would have uh, these gatherings of pastors and ministers up on the West Coast, and it was one of those things that As we got together, it was a badge of honor, depending on how crazy your testimony is. And I remember there was a guy who everybody talked about, uh, one of the pastors, who everybody talked about as this huge badge of honor because his past was, he was responsible for one of the largest prison riots in California State Penitentiary history. In his past. And the reason why he went to prison is because he hooked up a guy to a car battery I'll just say it, we're men, by his nipples. That's what he did. He was a neo-Nazi fascist in his past life, and yes, God did an amazing work to bring him out of that. But we spent more time celebrating this crazy past than what God had done. And I loved it. I loved it. And one of the men who is the leader of this kind of movement I remember being in his house and seeing all that he was talking about. I remember asking the question, wait a minute, whose kingdom is being built here? Whose kingdom really is being built? Is the kingdom of man being built? That's glorifying this triumph, this vision of being a man that is macho and destructive. Or are we talking about something that's completely subversive and different called the kingdom of God? And it wasn't very long after that, perhaps a year, that I believe God gave me this vision one night. 
and it was a picture of myself at the age of 50. And not only was I no longer doing ministry, but I was no longer walking with Jesus Christ. And the reason is I began to see that I was on this trajectory that was so selfish, that was so prideful, that was so arrogant, it was so about me. I was so consumed with my own vision, my own anger, my own past, that Jesus wasn't even a part of it. And so when I think about what does it mean to glorify God, to live a life for His glory, I know without a shadow of doubt what it's not. And that's to live a life for your own glory. It's to live a life for your own glory. You see, you and I, because we've been made in the image of God, we know a little something, especially as men, about glory, about honor, about wanting to live for something bigger than ourselves. The problem is that because of our sin, that idea of glory has been twisted. And no longer as being God's image bearers are we living for His glory. We spend so much time and energy and our resources trying to build our own little kingdoms for our own glory. And that thing that I'm talking about has a word in the Bible, and that word is pride. That word is pride. And it's a reason why Jonathan Edwards says that pride is the worst part of the body of sin and death. Pride, Edward says, is the worst part of the body of sin and death, that the first sin that ever entered into the universe, Edward says, and the last that is roosted out. It is God's most stubborn enemy. What is Edward saying? He's saying, ultimately, pride was the root of the very first sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. They were interested not in the glory of God, but their own. And so they disobeyed Him, His word. They called Him into question. They elevated and wanted to continue to elevate themselves at His place. Pride was at the center of it. And the other thing that Edward says is that pride is the enemy. It's the enemy of God. Now, why would he say something so strong? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, C.J. Mahaney says it this way in Humility, True Greatness. He says, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on Him. So why would Edward say that pride is an enemy of God? Why would pride make us enemies of God? Well, because what pride does is it causes us to try to elevate ourselves to His position. And in that way, pride is a form of treason. It makes us traitors. It makes us robbers of the glory that is due only to God. And we rob God's glory and we try to hoard it for ourselves. For our credit, our gain, our notoriety. And pride takes many forms and we're going to see that this morning. It's not always what you think it looks like. But what we will see is God takes pride very seriously. He always has. This is Isaiah this morning, real quickly. Isaiah says this. He says, 
Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. We'll look later at James where it says that God opposes the proud. Why? Why would God oppose the proud? Well, it's because those who are prideful, and I think this morning, if you're feeling uncomfortable, you should, because it's all of us. It's a form of treason. And that, in our pride, makes us enemies. And this morning, we're going to look at this war, this war between our pride as men and the glory of God. And it's a war that's being fought and has been fought ever since the garden. But what we will find this morning is this war between these two opposing forces collided at the cross. And it's a war that was ultimately won 2,000 years ago at a man who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're going to see that pride is an incredibly dangerous thing, even for men who are deeply close to God, and even for men who have seen something of His glory. Pride is a dangerous thing. We're going to see this in four different ways. Uh, the first is we're going to see the pride of the people in their complaining. The pride of the people in their complaining. And we're going to see God's response and His glory is grace. And then we're going to see the pride of Moses and Aaron and their failure and in their rebellion. And then lastly, we're going to see God's glory in His judgment. His judgment of their pride. So the first thing we're going to look at in Numbers 20 is their complaint. And this idea of pride in complaining. Look at verse 2 with me very quickly. It says, Now there was no water for the congregation. Okay? So we don't need to overthink that, but it's important detail. They were in the desert, and they did not have water. Is that a good situation? Now, it's a very bad situation, and we can't just glaze over that. It's important that you recognize this was not a good situation to be in. They are wandering in the desert This is towards the end of their 40 years. They've been doing this a long time, and they have no water. And this has happened before. We'll talk about that in a second. And so they assembled themselves together, and there's a key word here, against Moses and against Aaron. So I want you to think about at this point, again, this is towards the end of their wandering. Think about all that God had done through Moses and Aaron. All that Moses and Aaron had done for the people. All that they had fought through. All that they had led through. How difficult that must have been for these men. And here they are, almost to the finish line, and the people have rallied around them, and they are against Moses and Aaron. Now, I wonder, many of you men this morning are in different places of leadership, whether it's through business or through the church. And I imagine at some point in your life, you have found yourself as a leader, having given your blood, sweat, and tears for some cause or something, leading a bunch of people, and they have rallied themselves against you. How does that make you feel? What does that do to your pride? 
This is where Moses and Aaron are finding themselves. These people have rallied against them. Look at verse 3. And the people quarreled with Moses. And this is what they said. Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Okay, what are the people saying? It would have been better us for, to die as slaves. That's what they're saying. They're saying, Moses and Aaron, this is worse than when we were slaves. So thanks, but no thanks. I know you went to great pains to draw us out of slavery, out of Pharaoh's captivity, through the Red Sea. I know we have seen countless miracles, time after time after time after time, to deliver us from this slavery. It would have been better for us to have just been left there and die than to be where we are here. So not only are we against you, Moses and Aaron, but we are spitting on the very thing that you have done. And the word here that the Bible uses, the word quarrel, is the same word that's used often in the Old Testament for lawsuit. In other words, this quarrel, it's like a lawsuit. They are bringing Moses and Aaron up on charges. And they are demanding a verdict. Think about, this isn't just complaining. This is anger. This is anger. And it had happened before. Exodus 17, we don't have time to read it. Exodus 17 describes a, a similar scenario. Although this one was not towards the end of their wandering, this one was at the beginning. And it's so similar that some uh, theologians and, and Bible scholars think, well, maybe it's describing the th- same thing. And I don't have time to get into why I don't think that's true. Uh, namely, there are some key details that are very different. But I think the biggest thing is to recognize where in the narrative these things take place. And so my belief is that these are not describing the same story, but rather you're seeing a bookend to Israel's wandering through the desert. At the beginning of their wandering, they are thirsty and they cry out against Moses and Aaron and against God and they demand that water be given and God gives them water. And at the end of their wandering, almost 40 years later, they cry out for water again, demanding that Moses and Aaron do something different. And God miraculously gives them water once more, except this time in Numbers 20, we see that God gives them gracious water through the broken disobedience of Moses and Aaron. I want you to look at their response. We'll see the glory of God and His grace. Before we get there, James 4 what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your present, your passions are at war within you? He goes on and says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When life becomes difficult for you, perhaps you're not thirsty this morning in a desert, literally needing water, but maybe you feel that way. As a man, what is your modus operandi? What do you typically do when you are facing something difficult? As a man, where do you turn? Do you find yourself beginning to turn the wheels and begin to rely on your own resources, your own abilities, begin to orchestrate everything around you in order to overcome whatever is going on? Where do you turn? What do you do? You see, the root of their complaining, of their quarreling, was not ultimately thirst. It was pride. It was pride. A funny form of pride that you perhaps don't think of because so often you think pride is accomplished people lording their accomplishments over others. But no, their, their pride was so deep and so twisted that they were so consumed with their self and their own circumstances that they could not see beyond it. There's a great book that I would recommend to you on humility by Andrew Murray. And he describes humility this way. He says, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me, when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in, sec- in secret, where I'm at peace in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. Andrew Murray recognizes that really humility is when everything around you is completely being destroyed and falling apart. You are at peace. Why? Because you recognize who's in charge. And it's not you. It's a God who loves you. A God who cares for you. A God who provides for you. A God who gives you every good and perfect gift. You see, it's pride ultimately that causes us to think that we're in charge. And so when things begin to break, we do what men who are in charge tend to do. We try to fix it. Where do you turn? They turn to themselves and they turn to Moses and Aaron. And we see God's response in his grace. Uh, verse 6, it says, Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, to give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. All right? Real quickly, just a couple things to notice that God's response, once again, even though these people are grumbling, complaining, after miracle, after miracle, after miracle, is grace. It's grace. And He tells Moses and Aaron here, go, tell this rock to burst forth water, and I will give water to my people. God is gracious, even in the midst of our pride, even in the midst of our failure, even in the midst of our rebellion. But even with His grace, we're going to see that He takes it incredibly seriously. The pride of the people, the gracious response of God, 
And then we see the response of Moses and Aaron. Do you think they were gracious like God was? If they had understood who was in charge in that moment, perhaps they could have been. But I think what you're going to see is that Moses and Aaron, at the end of a long fight, at the end of a long, long fight, think of all that they've been through. They're tired, they're worn out, and they can't really see God past the accusations, the insults, and their hurt pride. The quarreling of the people demanding that they did something different with them. And this is what happens. Once you look with me, verse 10, Moses, uh, Numbers 20, it says, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. Now, remember what God told them. Tell this rock to bring forth water, and I will give water to my people It says, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with the staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. In a moment we'll look, well let's go ahead and look now, verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given them. All right, here's what I want you to notice a couple things, and then we'll really, perhaps you're familiar with this story. It's a significant event, not only the life of Israel, but the life of Moses and Aaron. Why is it significant for Moses and Aaron? If you remember the whole point of all of this wandering, the whole point of them being drawn out of slavery is not just to get out of slavery. In the same way that you and I, our salvation is not just to get us out of sin, but it's that you and I now have a home, right? A home that is not here, a home that is heaven, a home that's been promised to us for them. They had a home that was promised to them, the promised land. A land that he had called Moses and Aaron to lead them into. And here, what is God saying? Moses and Aaron, you can't go. I know that you've done everything for me. You've done everything I've asked. But because you've just done this, this thing, this grievous thing, you are no longer allowed to go to the promised land. You will never enter the land that I am leading my people into. All right, God, so what what on earth did Moses and Aaron do that after the end of a long life of leadership and ministry, that you would refuse them entrance into the promised land, this very land that you'd promised the people. What did they do? And that's what I want to look at as we conclude our time this morning. Does the punishment fit the crime? What did they do? I want you to look back at at, uh, verse 10. Now, many people have tried to figure out what what on earth is going on here and have asked the same question. It seems like God is being heavy-handed. And a lot of that, they're focusing on almost like a Simon Says thing, is the way I would put it. God tells them, Moses, speak to the rock and water will come forth. And what does Moses do? He strikes the rock. Uh, uh, Uh-uh-uh, Simon didn't say, right? That's not what I said. 
But I want us this morning as men to recognize something, that this is, this is much deeper than that. This is not about, well, I told you one thing and you did a different thing. Oh, I, I tricked you. Because you remember in the Exodus 17 passage, same event that happened many, many years ago, God actually commanded Moses to strike the rock. So he's not trying to catch him in some little word game. I believe you can really tell what's going on here by really looking at Moses' speech. Look with me again at verse 20. Look what Moses says to the people. He says, hear now, you rebels. Moses calls the people rebels. Who do you think they were rebelling against in Moses' mind? What was he most concerned about? Go ahead. Himself. Exactly right. Where does anger come from? Is he angry with the people because they've rebelled against God? No. And so as he calls them rebels, his concern is not the glory of God, it's his own. He's saying, how dare you rebel against me? How dare you? After all I have done for you, how dare you rebel against me? And the reason why I believe he's He's concerned with himself and not God is the very next word. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? There's a word there that I think is very telling. What word do you think that is? We. We. Shall we bring water? In other words, shall God and I do this for you? Because we're the same, God and I. Moses had begun to see himself on the same par with God, and no longer was he seeing himself as God's instrument, as God's steward, as God's servant. But he had elevated himself in his own mind. And so this whole episode, this whole display, is ultimately just about him. It's about his glory. It's about his hurt pride. It's about these people who rebelled against him. And so he, in this moment, strikes the rock, I believe, out of anger. Why? Why would he do that? Because he's trying to teach them a lesson about who is in charge. And it's not God. It's him. And so I ask you again, does the punishment fit the crime? That God would then respond to this episode by saying, Moses, you are no longer allowed to enter into the promised land. Remember what pride is. It's treason. It makes us the enemy of God. In this moment, Moses, Moses, God's deliverer, has committed treason. He committed treason publicly. Man, I want you to understand this thing this morning, that pride is incredibly dangerous. And it affects all of us as men. And even at the end of a long life of ministry in Moses, he finds himself now opposed to God because he cannot see past his own ego, his own hurt pride. To the point where he would say, shall we do this thing? Shall we bring water to you? To the point where he would accuse rebellion of the people he'd been leading, not rebelling against God, but against himself. 
Andrew Murray, in a different book, uh, says it this way. God has a plan for his church upon the earth, but alas, we too often make our plan and we think that we know what ought to be done. We ask God first to bless our feeble efforts instead of absolutely refusing to go unless God go before us. Moses had a different plan, a different plan altogether, and it was not for the glory of God. And so as we end this morning, I think it's interesting that Paul refers to both this story and the story in Exodus in 1 Corinthians 10. And perhaps this is a good place for you to begin at your tables. It's in 1 Corinthians 10, and so perhaps maybe to read it together would be a good thing to do. If you look at just the first five verses, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under a cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown on the wilderness. Paul says, he declares that this rock from which the water flowed was Christ, ultimately. And if you begin to think that God has always used imperfect people to do incredible things, Many years later, God would use the sin and pride of men to bring a man who was sinless and without pride to go to the cross and to die a death that you and I should have died, to take on our treason, on our pride, and in His humility and shame to die a death and to rise again that you and I could have life. This rock that is Christ that now feeds us, that gives us water, teaches us That where Moses failed, Christ succeeds. That where Moses struggled with pride, Christ, in his humility and shame, went to the cross to bear our pride and our shame on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the rock. So whatever it is that you're building your kingdom, whose kingdom are you building? And where are you building it? If you are trying to build a kingdom out of your own pride on the sand, it will crumble. Are you building a kingdom on the rock that is Christ, His kingdom, and not yours? And so let me leave you with this thought, this example of humility. Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection. And not only example, but a death in our place that we could begin to know what it means to be men who are so overwhelmed with the glory of God that we could not help but be humble. Let me pray for you and send you on your way. Father, we ask you'd give us a vision of humility, recognizing that it is not something we can produce in ourselves, but something that must be produced in us. And so we're thankful as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians, for this example, not in Christ's life, but in Moses's, That so much of what we have studied in Moses has been an example for good, and yet this story stands as a warning. A warning to us as men that we must not be complacent in our pride, but we must recognize only by the glory of God and our seeing how big and majestic you are that we would begin to be humbled and to begin to pursue humility. So I pray that for my brothers here this morning, for myself as well, that we would be known as men who are not prideful, but humble men and humbled men 
and men who live for the glory of another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.